Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. Here's a question. What does it take to start a career in entertainment? Everyone has a different answer for that question, but for my guest, all it took was a visit to a magic shop at age 10. From then on, it was a decades-long career starting with cruise ships and eventually branching out to the wider world of entertainment from his base in Las Vegas. Edwin Rojas is my guest. He heads the Rojas Talent Group, which produces shows for casinos, theaters, hotels and resorts, cruise lines, and many top corporations. Besides producing shows, he also manages several entertainers, and he consults for major entertainment projects and venues. For everything about Edwin Rojas, go to Rojas, that's R-O-J-A-S, RojasTalent.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Rojas Talent. And Edwin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ira. It's a pleasure to be here. Given the impact of the magic shop on you at age 10, why didn't you become a magician? I was a magician. That's how I started. Ah, my job for like all right. Years. There we go. That answers uh, the mystery. I went through high school doing it. Excellent. Maybe through college doing it. But did you do it professionally after college? Well, it's a long story. <laughs> I did. Yes. Uh, I was born in Miami. And in Miami, as an entertainer between May and September, October, it was a very seasonal town back in the late 70s, early 80s, mid 80s. Uh, so I couldn't get any work. And I was putting my rent on a credit card. And somebody and I said, wow, that's not going to work. I, I need to get a gig. I need to get a job. And somebody told me every one of those cruise ships that leaves Miami has entertainment on it. And I, I had seen the ships my whole life sailing on Saturdays and Sundays out of the port of Miami. But I had never thought of that. So back then, there was no internet. So I started knocking on their doors, sending in my resumes. And during college, my summers in college, out of college, I would work on the cruise ships and make money. And that's how I made my living and paid my rent. And then when I graduated with a BBA in marketing in 1985 from Florida International University, I just, I love ships and I went, kept working on the ships. And then one day a, a cruise director who was the person in charge of all the entertainment department on the ship said, Hey, Edwin, you've got the personality to do what I do. And I looked at him and I said, you're crazy. I said, you know, I was a young kid, single, I just out of school. I used to stay up all night. I used to go to bed around six in the morning. And at six in the morning, when I was having breakfast to go to bed, I would see them waking up. I said, man, you wake up at six, seven in the morning. There's no way I can do your job. But it planted the seed in my head because I always loved the business part of it almost more than the performance side of it. And it, it was my skill set. Selling the show, I always loved more than doing the show. And so he, he planted that seed. And then sure enough, I became an assistant cruise director. And then I became a cruise director for over 20 years on the ships in the 80s for Norwegian Cruise Line, who put me through college. And then for the 90s, I worked for Holland America Line. And then in the 2000s, I went to Celebrity Cruises, where I ended up in the corporate office booking all the entertainers. So I was an entertainer at first. In fact, I tell a lot of people, I've had, there's four chairs in entertainment, and I've had all four of them. The first one, performer. I was a performer. Second one, presenter. I was a presenter as a cruise director. You presented six shows every week. And then I was the the booker at Celebrity Cruises. I had a million-dollar budget per month to book all the entertainment for the nine vessels. And now I'm selling. I'm an agent now selling shows. So I've done all four seats in the entertainment business. Just for the record, I was correct in this sense because I asked you, 
why you didn't become a magician. What I meant was a full-time professional magician. So you were a magician during college, as you mentioned and earlier, but yep. when you went to perform on the cruise ships, it wasn't necessarily magic, correct? I just want to clarify that. Well, I was. I was a comedy magician when I first started on the ships. Okay. I always wanted to work for Holland America Line. When they <laughs> hired me, they said, we'll hire you as an assistant cruise director right. with the opportunity to be a cruise director very shortly. But, and it was a really big but, I had, he said, you can't perform. I'm like, wow, I cannot perform. Wait, no, why, was that, why was that a stipulation that you weren't allowed to also perform? Because they want you to be the best you can be at what you're doing. And I, at first, I didn't agree with it. And the older I got, the wiser I got, the more I didn't have the energy I did as a young man when I was out there still in my 30s, I realized that was the right thing to do. You know, my old man had a saying, do what you do best, farm out the rest. And that's so true. If you're the cruise director, you're up at seven in the morning, you're going to one in the morning, you're going 90 miles an hour, seven days a week for four to five, six months at a time. So it's really draining physically. So like if you're up at seven and you're doing all you have to do, and then at eight o'clock, you got to do a show, your energy's just not there. Yeah, it was a very good business decision, I thought, on their part. But you're, you know, you're a cruise director, and that's what you do, and your job is to present the entertainers and make sure they can do the best job possible. But if you're a cruise director, and at eight o'clock and 10 o'clock, you got to do two shows, by the end of the night, you've got no energy. So your performance won't be 100%. So they wanted to get the best they can of their people. And it's a very smart decision. No, that makes sense. Have you stopped putting the rent on your credit card? I have. <laughs> okay, that's, that's another <laughs> lesson. scary times. <laughs> I think everybody has been through that moment where you just go, yeah, okay, well, what do I do now? In the last couple of years, there's a lot of entertainers putting everything on credit cards, unfortunately. True. Well, what was that like? And, I, and I'm going to pick up where you are, but you, you raised an interesting point just now. Well, how has it worked for you in the entertainment world during covid this has been going on for a while, and you obviously are not at the performing side of it, but you still are representing people and booking people. Has it been a major challenge for you, and do you have to come up with creative ways to get your clients booked? Oh, my God. It's uh, the most challenging thing I've ever experienced in my life. I've, I've, I've always been a very positive, upbeat person, and as I look back now in the last years, last year and a half or whatever, I was clinically depressed. I couldn't believe it, you know? When this started happening in March, summer of 2020, I had the most incredible summer booked up for everybody. I had contracts left, right, and center. So at first, you wake up every morning, and a lot of my clients are in the East Coast. So being here in Las Vegas, you wake up, and there's always there's 10, 20, 30, 40 emails to answer. We're going to postpone this show. We're going to postpone that show. It's like, okay, they're postponing. That's okay. And then 10, 15 days later, maybe mid-April, we're canceling this. We're canceling that. Force majeure. Force majeure. And I, I just couldn't believe it. Left, right, and center, everything went away. And just for our listeners, force majeure means force of nature. In other words, if there's something that yeah. is beyond the control of anybody, for right. those who need a legal It's a definition. clause in every contract in the entertainment business. And it's because mainly a lot of concerts outside or whatever, and it's raining. You can deal with it however it may be. But it's uh, anyway, by April, May, by May, Pretty much everything in the books for the year were wiped out, and I just couldn't believe it. I would wake up, I go to the computer. There's no email. There's no voicemails. There's no email. There's no email coming in through the day. There's no calls coming in through the day. I'd have lunch and I take a nap, and I look back. And I was just, I just was trying to get away from it. And then I thought, ah, when when I realized, okay, this is reality. You got to deal with it. You got to come out of it. And I said, oh, by July, August, 
we're up and running by the fall. Here we are. And then here we are the fall of the following year and things are just waking up now. So I have a lot of uh, some entertainers that I work with have just retired. They had enough money. They did their time. They said, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore. Some people are scrambling and doing other things from, you know, Uber drivers to whatever to make ends meet. And I get that. Other performers now, I see her going back out to sea. And, you know, it's, some people think it may not be the safest place, but, it, you know, with all the COVID shots and uh, vaccinations, it's getting better. But some people say, if I don't go out, I'm going to lose my house. So, you know, you, you, everyone's in a different situation, but it's been a very, very rough year and a half. Some of my guests talked about also just working through Zoom and performing. I know a magician, particularly who was a guest, talked about doing Zoom performances as a way of keeping the performing muscle working and also generating some revenue. I hate it. <laughs> you know, I was born to perform in front of a live audience. I love an audience in front of me. And I was invited to many Zoom uh, showcases with entertainers. And man, if it was a comedian, it was just awful. Not because the comedian was awful, because there was no laughter in the room. There's no vibe of an audience. It's, it was awful. After a while, I said, I just can't do it anymore. And I stopped going. Now, don't get me wrong. I booked some people as a Zoom host for teleconferences for corporations or whatever it may be. And there was some work coming in, which was great. But as me, as a performer, as a loving life performance, as loving people performing on the wood of a stage with an audience in front of them, and you see Zoom, sorry. It's like being a chef at a Michelin three-star restaurant, and then you're serving hamburgers at In-N-Out Burger. It's a great product, but it's a different thing. And there's also the ones that are hybrid where they have a live audience, but it's restricted. And at the same time, they're streaming the performance to the wider yes. world. Yeah. So they're that it's way like, too. You know, well, I got to say dude, thanks to COVID because I was, I'm a musical theater fanatic. I love it. It's my, it's my hobby basically. And for five years, I could never get to New York and I wanted to see Hamilton, wanted to see Hamilton, wanted to see Hamilton. And I knew Disney had recorded it. And it was going to come out now in 2022, I think it was the original. And then when COVID came and Disney Plus made it, they get released it. I go, oh my, I was there at midnight when it came on. And I watched it like three times in a row to six in the morning. And I watched probably 10 or 12 times. And actually just last month, my wife and I drove to LA to see it in LA. I was like, oh my God, I saw it live. It's, it's everything I expect. It's a work of genius. And I fell in love with it. But thanks to video. I saw a live performance and it was kind of flat without having an audience there on the Disney thing. But, you know, but at least you could, you can zone in all those lyrics and there's a million lyrics a minute in that show, but it, it was great to see. I want to get back to your cruise experiences and then how you decided to move to Las Vegas. Real quick question on about the cruises. Did you have a chance when you were the cruise director to enjoy all the amenities of the ship or is it because you're so busy you're basically eating on the run and getting four hours sleep and starting all over again. I was just curious about how that works. I know how it works for performers and what they're entitled to, but what about the cruise director? Does he or she get to enjoy the cruise amenities, as I would call them? Absolutely. After doing it 20 plus years, you take it for granted. But yes, you're on the ship. There's really, there's three or four executive positions. The captain, of course, the chief engineer in charge of the engine room the hotel director and the cruise director. And those four persons, he or she, should be a real close-knit team. 
and you can, as a cruise director, you can eat everywhere you, and you can entertain guests anyway, take them to a bar and buy them a drink. Somebody has a bad day and you know it, you, you go to the bar and socialize with them and try to soften whatever bad or good happened to them that day. And they'll say, Oh, that cruise director is terrific. And you, the cruise director is the liaison between the cruise line and the guest on the ship. So you have full run of the ship. When guests were in port, I would go to the spa and have a massage or use the gymnasium or even go a little bit of swimming. At nighttime, if you wanted to, you can go to any of the restaurants. I was known to watch every single show, every single performance. Uh, my dad was a chef. Food was very big in our house, and I love eating and eating well. But there was a lot of the great meals that I missed because I wanted to see both shows. He said, why are you doing that? I go, because from every show, you learn something. And God forbid, and it happened a couple times in my 20 years at sea, but God forbid somebody has a heart attack in the theater and there's nobody there, but the performer, how are you going to handle that situation? So there's a time once right before the show started, major heart attack. I had to take everybody out of the theater, tell them to go other places that I make an announcement on the PA system. Probably an hour later, we had settled the situation. The gentleman had taken, taken away. And he did all right finally, but it was, it was ugly. And we brought everybody in and it was a comedy show. So you're starting a comedy show with a big downer, you know, yeah. the comedian came through for me, Mr. I, Don Sherman. I think that there's a book in you about your experiences just on the cruise ship. So think about that. And the reason I wanted to have you on, Edwin, is because you do have this passion for hard work and for what you do, which is the entertainment world. So at some point you decided to move from Florida, I don't know if it was direct or not, but you moved from Florida to Las Vegas to begin a base of operations here. How did that come about? It's a good story. First of all, I did write a book and it's just for my boys. I have two boys and I was, I was always sailing and I was gone for my older boy, especially. So it's good stories, funny stories, bad stories, horrifying stories, all put in a little book that someday they're going to get it just so they know what I did for 20 years at sea. How did I get to Las Vegas? I was working on two projects and both projects would bring me into town. I was flying here once or twice a month for over a year. And there was one day I told my wife out of the blue, my wife had never, ever, ever been here. And I said, you know, if we move there, you probably save around four or five grand, let's say three or four grand a month. And she goes, if you want to move there, we move there. And I couldn't believe she said that. So sure enough, I got on a plane. It was June of 14. We flew out here. We had four days, 96 hours to find a house to live in. That time, our son was in middle school, so we had to find a good school system. And I put her at the wind. We stayed at the wind for the four days because I knew if she wasn't happy and she likes the finer things of life, we weren't going to have me here. So we stayed at the wind. And uh, we even went to the Smith Center one night to see Book of Mormon. And laughed our asses off there too. But anyway, so we came here, we found it, we found the right house. It was the wrong school system. We found the right school system, couldn't find a house. At the last minute, we found a house in Anthem and in Henderson. And we, we lived there for a while. We lived there for two years. Then they sold the house and we had to move. And we moved to the country club in Anthem. Same thing. They sold the house. We had to move. And now we're living in Seven Hills and very happy here. But uh, the two projects that brought me here was, we, I was I wanted to produce a show and I was producing a show downtown called Jamaican Me Laugh with a very funny comedian, a ventriloquist. And the other project, I, I, along with a business partner, we were trying to sell the largest sports memorabilia collection in the world. It was valued, I think, at that time, $250 million. 
And the gentleman that owned it, yeah, it's big time. Yeah. He had Honus Wagner cards, Ali robes, gloves, you name a sport. He had F Formula One helmets. He had everything. It was a quarter of a million dollars authenticated. And I had a family friend who knew at that time, Mike Levin, who was the COO of Sands Corporation. And Mike took a liking to me and we came in. Mike loved the idea and he thought it'd be perfect for UNLV. So uh, UNLV football at that time was going to build a stadium. And the idea was that they'd buy or have one of the benefactors buy the sports memorabilia collection and display it there. And bring all the tourists from the strip. Uh, they'd run buses all day. And the stadium would have some revenue coming in 365 days a year. Well, that never came to fruition, unfortunately. And I, of course, thank God UNLV got a stadium along with the Raiders. And it's a world-class facility. But those two projects brought me to Vegas all the time. And anyway, we moved here and uh, I love it. I was here probably two or three years before I went back home to South Florida. And when I was there, I looked around, I go, man, you wake up in the morning and I miss those mountains. I love the mountains all around us here in the valley. My wife misses the beach, but I'm born in Miami. I was never a beach person. She's English and she likes her water. (laughs) (laughs) So how much of a challenge is it to base your operations from Las Vegas? Is it more positive than negative in terms of communicating with people and the fact that you're based in Las Vegas? There's a certain panache to that, I think, that people that you're talking to, whether it's even this country or other countries, when they hear you're based in Las Vegas, there's something about that that can help, I would think, in your world. It does, a lot. When I first moved here, of course, most of my clients and my business were in South Florida. I do a lot with the Seminole Tribe of Florida. All the cruise lines are in South Florida, 80% of them. So I said, well, it doesn't really matter. Most of lately, they didn't even want to see you face to face. It was all by email or telephone, mainly email. So I could live anywhere in the world. And sometimes we were in England visiting my wife's family and I would wake up early and nothing was happening. And around three o'clock in the afternoon, the East Coast woke up. I'd start working until 11 o'clock at night and nobody knew any different. But when I moved here, just like you insinuated, there was this whole halo effect. Entertainers would say, oh, you're based in Las Vegas. Would you represent us? Uh, some people, some small performing arts theaters, say, oh, you're from Las Vegas. So you, There's a halo effect. And this is the, the live show business capital of the world for a reason. Best entertainers in the world are here. And if you're in the industry in here, it does have a halo effect and it helps tremendously, Ira. Who had the most impact on you in terms of your professional career? Was there one person that gave you sage advice in addition to your father that just set it in cement that this is what you're going to do the rest of your life? Was there that one person? I'm always interested about the fact that people who have a passion for work as you do also usually have one or two mentors or people who gave them a germ of an idea or inspiration? Was there somebody beyond your father that helped you along the way? Well, my parents wanted me to be a lawyer or a doctor. I'm first generation American. I think most immigrant parents, you know, and education in my my mother's side of the family, they're all in education. My mom was a school teacher. My grandparents were college professors. And my grandfather was a principal of a school in Cuba where my parents are from. So education is everything. And they'd say, you can do anything you want in the world, but you have to have a college degree. So I got my college degree. But uh, I mean, there was two people that I looked up to. One of them was Johnny Carson. I love Johnny Carson. And still to this day, there's lots of late night hosts. Nobody is Johnny Carson. And I, 
I was a kid back then coming to high school. And back then there was no DVDs, it was VHS tapes. But I'd record Johnny Carson. And as soon as I got home from high school or middle school, I'd watch the tape. And then, of course, I'd do my homework afterwards. And the other person, not very well known, there was a magician named Richie Artie. And I believe he was Argentine, if I'm not mistaken. But he was, I mean, probably if you ask the magicians here, they all know who he is. He was a legend. I met him as a young kid. He was performing in Miami Beach. And he had two shows every Saturday. At, I think it was the Eden Rock Hotel in Miami Beach. It was a beautiful, elegant Art Deco hotel. My mom would drop me off at 3 o'clock for the, for the matinee show or 2 o'clock, whenever it was. And I'd stay there just sitting on a wall, reading a book or whatever. There was no phones back then to play with. And then I'd watch the nighttime show. And then around 10 o'clock at night, she'd pick me up. So my whole day Saturday was spent at the Eden Rock. And I'd watch two shows of Rich Yardy. And he had three or four like opening acts. It would be like opening acts you would see now for Absinthe or Cirque or whatever. Circus type performers, very variety centric jugglers or light bulb eaters, really weird stuff. But his show, he had the most showmanship I've ever met it seen in anybody. And I've been in this business now. I'm 58 years old. I've been in this business 48 years since I was 10. He was just amazing. He finally, he ended his career performing, I think in NASA on the Bahamas. And he was a diabetic and he had lots of issues. And unfortunately he passed on, but he was amazing. And those two people for the show business part of it, I really looked up to for the, for the business side of it, lots of mentors, not that I've really met them, but I'm, I was, I'm a voracious reader. I think Steve jobs to me was God. I mean, this guy personality quirks. I'm sure he had a lot of them. Some people loved them. Some people hated him. But what he did professionally, I mean, from the Mac computer to the iPhone, to the iPod, to the graphical user interface, to iTunes. I mean, he disrupted so many industries and all still to this day, we use the technology. He didn't become the technologist, but he was the marketer behind it that made it happen. Also, I always looked up to creative artist agency, CAA, William Morris Endeavor, the two biggest agencies in the entertainment industry. And I would read any book on them and try to learn what to do right, what not to do right. But a lot of influences all around the world. I love, I love to read, as I said, I don't read fiction at all. I read biographies, autobiographies, business books. That, that's what I love to read. If I, people say, you don't read fiction? I say, I'm an avid moviegoer. I love art house films. That's where I get my novels. But I want to read something that's real where I can learn from. The mentors that you mentioned, I'm sure there's others, when you synthesize what you learn from them into your approach to entertainment management, how is your approach to entertainment management that may differ from others in the field? Do you have a very specific way of approaching a client, whether you're going to be producing a show for a venue or you're going to be booking a talent for a venue or you're going to be representing someone? Is there one approach that you take that's, I don't want to say unique, but is certainly you versus what the typical entertainment management is like? I agree. I've, I've learned from a lot of different people. Some people not even in the business is people being humans and being incredible humans. And my biggest feature, some people love it. Some people don't like it is I'm totally honest. And like, if you're, if I were representing you and you say, how was that show? I go, I'll say it was great. But then when you come down, I go, but actually this, this, and this should have been done like this or better. And I'm not going to get in the art. I mean, the artist is the art. 
I will give suggestions or I will give my comments or my, my opinion, but they're the artists. They can take it for what it's worth, and I will never step in the way once I've given my opinion. But it's just my opinion. But I'm very, very honest. I think the, the, the coin nowadays is transparency. But to me, it just means honesty. In your case, uh, you're being authentic with your client. Absolutely. Like a big part of our revenue right now is celebrity personal appearances, where let's say the Seminole tribe of South Florida say we're looking for Carmen Electra to host the blackjack tournament. So I brokered the deal between her management or her agent or her publicist and herself. Anyway, her people and the, the Seminole tribe of South Florida representing a certain casino. And they all come to me and they come to me all the time. They say, you are the most transparent person because usually in a deal like that, it's what's called a, a buy sell. I buy, let's say Carmen says, I, I need a thousand dollars for the event. And I go to them. I said, I want $1,700 for the event and nobody knows the difference. I don't operate that way. I get the contract from Carmen Electric's $1,000. I show the tribe it's $1,000 and I add 10%. And they love me so that because they know they're not, they're not getting screwed. And I hate to use that word, but they're not getting gypped. You know, they're, it is what it is. And I'm working on 10% and I'm totally transparent. And then they, you know, get, I can write the contract or they can write the contract. But anyway, they know everything on the up and up. And that's why I get a lot of, that's how it, 60% of my business is that because we're honest and transparent. Well, that's a great way to leave it. And honesty, yep. my guess has been Edwin Rojas, who's a Rojas talent group, produces shows for casinos, theaters, hotels and resorts, cruise lines, and many top corporations. Besides producing shows, he also manages several entertainers and consults for major entertainment projects and venues. For everything about Edwin Rojas, and that's R-O-J-A-S, for everything about Edwin Rojas, go to Rojas Talent. Dot com And you can follow him on Twitter at Rojas Talent. Edwin, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Ira. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.